You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Excited to have Kathy Kuntz on the line. She is the executive director of the Analytics Leadership Consortium at the International Institute for Analytics. Did I get that's quite a mouthful? Did I get that totally right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you did. I, I tell people, yes, it is a real job, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you got it right. You nailed it. What and, and tell so tell tell our listeners like what what is what does that mean? What do you do? Yeah. Okay, so the International Institute for Analytics is an organization that was founded by Tom Davenport, one of the you know, early leaders in using analytics for business performance. And so we are a research and advisory firm that helps companies realize value from analytics. And so how, does you, how do you work with them like in your leadership capacity there? What's your specific role there? I lead the product line that's called the Analytics Leadership Consortium. And what that is, is a group of analytics executives from different companies who are in non-competing industries that meet on a regular basis to better understand trends and best practices in analytics, to vet ideas with one another, and ensure that they're doing the best that they can to deliver analytics value for their organization. It's a really great opportunity for leaders in this field of analytics that's changing a lot and has a lot of emerging practices, have regular time to get together in a confidential setting to understand you know, what's working and what's not and how they can improve analytic value for their company. And you mentioned uh, you know, trends. I obviously trying to, to stay on top of what's going on in that industry. And that, that's actually how I came across you originally, I think, was I, you guys had put out a webinar on, on five trends and analytics going on right now. And at the end of that, you had mentioned that one of the things that's starting to change now is the importance of design and user experience as we move beyond you know, designing report reports, in the, you know, which is one of the most typical you know, delivery deliverables, so to speak, uh, of analytics as we move into user experience becoming more important. That's what I was like, oh, this could be really interesting to hear what you have to say about how what's changing? Like, why, why is UX now relevant? How is capital D design relevant to the world of analytics? And so that's, that's what I was curious to learn about. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? I think as analytics mature in organizations, the need for design is, is what's going to drive adoption and utilization of those analytics. So, you know, in, in companies that are just starting their analytics journey, a little bit easier to realize analytic value by doing, you know, a couple of really big data science projects that don't really require a lot of design thinking. You know, it's it's a PowerPoint to an executive group that, you know, has some, you know, higher level, organizational level thinking that, you know, the executives lean in understand the analytics, understand the, the value of making their decisions in line with the analytics, and then, then move on and, and do their regular roles. But as organizations try to make analytics more pervasive, particularly into frontline associates or 
individual contributors who are really using analytics to make a lot of small decisions within the execution of their work or as they try to integrate analytics into processes that are monitored. That design thinking, taking an approach of user experience can really break down a lot of barriers that organizations encounter when trying to have people who are not necessarily used to using analytics in their decision-making process use them so that they can make a better decision for the organization. Is the trend that people are recognizing the problem because they, they went through some pain of like maybe they delivered they delivered some big multi-million dollar platform and, you know, like you said, the frontline associates didn't use it or, you know, it's like, well, they're, as I always use the example, it's like they're out driving a truck. They don't have a laptop and they're not going to go download a report and change the columns or whatever. It's like the wrong mechanism. You didn't fit it into their job. You tried to get them to change their job to accommodate your tool. Is the awareness because they went through a failure or is it kind of like, we already know this isn't going to work if we don't get the UX right just because you know companies are a little bit more design aware these days? Or how, what drove that to change? Why is it now? Well, I think there's two things. And, and first of all, it's, you know, they've failed. They've, they've invested millions of dollars in some sort of you know, decision support sort of application that may have you know, millions of dollars in, in data integration work that was done to build it and purchased a lot of really advanced software that can help, you know, users slice and dice the data and, and dive in and understand it. But, but they really took more of a data-centric approach rather than a user-centric approach. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they really didn't take it that extra step to say, how does this person go through their normal day in their decision-making? Where do they need this information in that decision-making? And how should it be best presented so that they don't have to do any sort of cognitive task switching that it just fits into how they go about making their decisions. And so I think those failures are one big driver. But then I also think as organizations move up the analytic maturity curve and move really from, you know, BI reports to predictive analytics to proscriptive analytics, those prescriptive analytics are going to be much more pervasive across the organization. And so I think it's this analytics maturity that's also driving this need to take, put more design thinking into the creation of analytic products. Do you have any specific examples of like a company that may have like, hey, you know, version one was was X and we didn't get what we wanted. Version Y was, you know, or X.2. We then went back and, you know, tried to fit this in better with that employee and we saw, you know, some kind of change as a result. Do you have do you, can you cite any examples of how design allowed the data to actually be insightful and create a, a meaningful change? One was a, you know, project that I was involved in at a, a large uh, property and casualty insurance company. We were trying to alert our franchise insurance agents if they had somebody in their book of business who was likely to not renew. It was based on really good data science and and model scores with, you know, with different, you know, clear deciles that that showed like, you know, significant likelihood to a trite between them. 
And it was originally deployed in a separate application with, I think, maybe some general groupings of how likely they were to leave. And the, you know, the utilization of it was more of a curiosity at that point. You know, there were some adopters, but not as, as broad as would be hoped to really be able to substantively move the needle on this. And, you know, as the, the design was redone and integrated into their overall CRM system with a, you know, widget on their CRM system that came up when they logged in in the morning, they didn't have to go look to see it was there for them. As we moved from groupings and scores into one star to five star, you know, five star is they're likely to go. You, you really need to work those. So just very simple little changes that drove a significant change in the utilization of that capability. Do you know what the blockers were such that it, it took a redesign? Like, so if someone was listening to this and they're like, I, I'm that person right now. We don't want to go through the, not the failure, but maybe the learning experience that your company went through. What do you do to like prevent that? Like, <laughs> is there a, yeah. like, here are some well, roadblocks I, to watch out for. Like, well, you know, the, the thing is, you know, these products are usually developed by folks within a data science group. And, you know, we have the data and we know this is a business problem and we've done the analytics and, you know, that is expected, but not sufficient, right? Then the next step is to really, you know, use just, you know, basic research techniques from, you know, consumer companies. Go out and and watch your user group that you want to, you know, utilize this data or these analytics to improve the performance. See how they do their job. What tools do they use? Where would this information be most relevant? How can it be presented in the context of their general activities, right? Where it's not a separate thing, where it's integrated into the stuff that shows up on their performance evaluations, right? That's the way to really avoid some of the deployments that that may have really great data and science behind them, but don't get the user adoption that's needed. So just take that extra step and really understand the user and where this information is going to be most relevant for them. Do you think the appetite from, from executives and people that are at the top of the reporting chain for these things support the time and the effort to go out and do that type of research or to try to fit it in and not so, so much focus on, you know, when are we releasing code and like, when's the next, you know, show, show me some progress. Show, you know, they want to see a GUI, you know, just show me some proof that there's millions of dollars is doing something versus, you know, this kind of squishy. It can be squishy for some, at least in my experience with certain yeah. executives, that especially qualitative stuff. Well, how many people did you talk to? It's like, oh, we talked to eight so far. It's like, we have 10,000 employees, you know? And so it's hard yeah. for certain ones to, to understand the value of qualitative research in these things. Do you have any experience or thoughts about that? You know, I think it, it can be squishy, but I think really analytics, especially you know, being deployed pervasively is, maybe not a project, but more of a transformation program. And you have to take a transformation program perspective to it, which includes such squishy things as change management and business process redesign. 
whatever scale or breadth you do that, I think it is key, you know, somebody using those analytics in within their decision-making process is really where the organization gets value from it. You know, that, that GUI, that code that gets released and deployed, you know, that, that is, an, it is an interim step, but it is not the final step to that right. organization getting value, right? And so, right. you know, maybe, maybe you're just a, you know, a data scientist a company trying to design a really great, you know, deploy a great app that could, you know, help a, a group of, you know, marketing folks better invest marketing or supply chain folks better manage, you know, costs of suppliers. It doesn't have to be this big, concerted professional effort, right? Mm-hmm. One one way to do that in a, you know, in a very agile, you know, low cost way is find a couple of folks that seem to be really jazzed about getting this, right? And and use them as some beta testers. And so maybe you start out with just the information on spreadsheets to say, hey, does this make sense from a you know, just from a pure, is this information that, that you would use? And then have them walk you through, you know, where where would you use this information? How would it be best presented to you? And then think about working within the constraints you have of, you know, maybe you can't change the screen for this, you know, digital marketing spend that, that somebody uses, but how can you make that information as accessible as possible where it really is, more of a push of information at the right time as opposed to pull of information that a human being has to remember to go get when they're right. in the process of executing, quote, their day job. Yeah, you hit on some great stuff there. So, and I talk about this to my list quite frequently, which is, you know, understanding tasks and workflows and people's day-to-day jobs that the goal is to fit your solution into their existing behavior as much as Possible. It's really hard to change behaviors to, oh, I got to go remember now to load this other screen and pull out this number on page two and then tape it, you know, paste it into this other screen and then hit enter. And then it does some analytics. And then I go, <laughs> you know, this is the kind of stuff right. why people don't bother to do it. It's like, well, my guess is good enough. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm just going to, like, whatever. No one's going to know if I did that or not. They don't know where that number came from. And so they don't want to do exactly. it. And, and so, yeah. under, first of all, it's understand that pain. And then a, another tech, good technique there is to, if you're going to improve a process and you need to change behavior, like we need, we want people to use this new tool in order to realize this new value, it's to ask them to replay. First of all, understand that benchmark of like what their existing workflow, their playbook is, and then ask them to do the same playbook using the new platform. And, and this is a great way to uncover the things that you don't know to ask about necessarily, because if you first get that model of how they do it now, it'll help elucidate the, those gaps that we can't see because you can provide a new design, but you don't, you know, there, there was, a, I just read an article about, there was an example like, like let's imagine designing a new hotel room and you might take for granted that that hotel room has a bathroom, right? But as Jared Spool was talking about this, like you'd be really surprised if you walked in and there was no bathroom because no one stated that was a requirement and, and because everyone just took it for granted. And so it's those kind of things that, you won't see as a data scientist or product manager, perhaps, because you don't know what this, you know, frontline worker is necessarily doing all day. But I love that you talked about, you know, getting getting into the minds of what people are doing and and, and fitting your solution into into them. So, do you have any comments though about like, I mean, one problem I see is that 
some, in some places, it's really hard to get access to customers. I think sometimes this is more on enterprise companies that are selling a, a product that has data. You know, data is a big part of it. It can be hard to access them. You would think, you know, companies doing internal analytics that this would be easier. Do you think that comes from leadership? Do you think that comes from the ground up? Like, any, any comments on how do you get access to the right people? And and like, if what if they're not being like, hey, I'm a call center. Like, I get paid hourly by the number of calls I do, and you want me to go work on your new software? Like, why should I? How do you incentivize that, right? So that they become a design partner, which ultimately is really where you want to go is to have a team of partners from subject matter experts and product managers, the data science people, whoever it is that, that is going to affect the solution that comes out. But how do you, what needs to change in order to incentivize that participation? It takes time, right, to get these things right. Yeah, for sure. And, and we see that a lot just because, you know, as you noted, the, the breadth of the organization or the different, you know, incentives and priorities that other groups might have. And so, you know, I mean, I hear companies all the time, senior leaders, you know, we are going to be an analytics competitor and we're going to, you know, do analytics. And, you know, they think if they, if they hire 200 PhD data scientists that, you know, they are now an analytics company, right? And so, you know, I, I do think you've got to have somebody at a leadership role, at least over the data science group, say, look, you know, this company gets value from this when we're making better decisions because of these analytics. And those better decisions are going to come from people accessing the analytics when they're in their decision-making process, right? And really working more leader to leader, but that, that can't be where it stops. And you've got to create kind of peer relationships at all levels, number one. And then number two, I think, if you get the leadership of the other group engaged early on, and this is a problem that they feel they have ownership in and that they are a co-creator with you, and that starts at a leader level and then works its way down, then I think you're going to have greater access and more, you know, more ability to do that. And then finally, you know, in the absence of that, if you don't get it, right, then I would at least you know, as you're deploying the new app, you know, say our next step is to watch the staff members use it and identify, you know, how to better integrate it so that at least you're showing some leadership in your thinking that I know this is going to be a problem because I didn't have access to them and I'm already teeing it up. We're going to have to come back and, and see how people are using it and how we can utilize some user experience and design thinking in a subsequent phase after it's been released. Some of my clients in the past, they have to go through a failure first in order to decide that they don't want to do it. We don't want to do the build first, design second you know, <laughs> process on the next one. Right. But it does take, you know, there's a certain level of convincing that can happen. And then at some point, you got to move forward because typically IT or the business, they have been tasked with like deploy this new you know, model and software into the server. And they're going to do that no matter what. They're not going to stop and wait for design if that organization is, doesn't have a mature design practice. So you might have to go through that. You know, I would say, obviously, you know, it's always cheaper to adjust things in pixels and pencils than it is to adjust it in working code. So the more you can get in front of these decisions and inform the engineering and the data science prior to that, those big, you know, 
deploying a large application, it's it's a lot cheaper and it's a lot easier, and you don't have all the change the change costs associated with that, both time, money, labor, and no one likes to do it twice. You know, most people want to work on new problems; they don't want to redo the same ones. Engineers usually don't like doing yeah. that. So, you know, getting in front of well, it I think, is good. I think what you're touching on there is, you know, maybe if you haven't done your user design work, then you think about this release is a beta release, and mm-hmm. you you plan this release. And you plan this app and you manage your code knowing it's going to change at some point and mm-hmm. knowing it's going to change soon. And then the second thing is key point is to, to decouple the, you know, the analytic insight from the application, right? So, you know, there is an analytic insight, whether it's a, a number or a, a recommendation or, or some score or something. If it is just, you know, loosely coupled to the delivery mechanism, then it is uh, easier from, you know, a, a code engineering perspective to have it delivered in a different way. Right. No, that's great. And I, part of that's that the attitude and the culture of change and not falling in love with our first versions of stuff. And to me, that has to be kind of ingrained in both you know, the engineering the, all the teams that are touching the product or the service that's being put out there, if, if that's not there. A lot of companies say they're doing agile. A lot of them are not. They're, they're skipping one of the most important parts, which is getting some kind of customer representation involved and actually iterating and not just doing incremental design where you keep adding more, add another feature, add another yeah. data point. That's incremental design. That's not iterating and, and, and changing as you get feedback. So you know, that's something to, to, to watch out for as well. And, you know, at, at some point, you need to get some stuff out there. And the costs have come down, obviously, to deploy software. It, it's, it's overall cheaper to get something out there quickly and to start getting feedback on it. But it's very easy to not get the feedback and to let working code feel like success until someone at the top well, says, where's all the bang we're supposed to get for this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, though, I think... I think the 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 approach there, right, is get it deployed, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that's great. It's out there and yeah. and it's working, right? But again, just just know that you know build into your deployment plan this you know user feedback and change from there, right? So if you you know if you are not fully deployed until after you have received this feedback. And implemented the the needed changes within the application, then you know I think that's another way to kind of prevent that falling in love with your first design. You know right. that this is just deployed so that people can use it, and that giving you feedback and and making those needed changes is an expected part of the deployment process, and is not a failure that the application was not sufficient. I think that should be part of any software development process uh, to have a, a loop, you know, a loop of test, design, you know, refine, deploy in right. a circle. Because you're, ne- you're never done with this stuff. I mean, for the most part, for larger applications, you're never really done with it. It's, it's a process of getting better and figuring out the ROI. Like, have we, have we hit the mark yet? Is it worth spending more time and money on this? But yeah, uh, those are great insights. So I'm curious, like in terms of the roles... I feel like someone that's at the top of a, if they, at the responsibility chain here needs to have a healthy dose of skepticism about their own stuff. Like, especially 
when it comes to like prescriptive and predictive analytics or any service where it's custom software they're deploying into the organization, have a healthy dose of skepticism about how great it really is. Maybe you deployed on time, bug-free, you can see the stats and all of this, but is that responsibility primarily falling into the data science realm because companies are investing in that area right now? And so they become the de facto, what we would call a product manager more in, in the SaaS world. Do they kind of become that? And is that the right place for that responsibility to be? I see that happen really not necessarily through design and or, or design and intention, but just because if they want, you know, if a data scientist wants to take this great science that he's discovered and, and make it accessible in a lot of organizations, they have to do it, right? And so it's put upon them when they're probably not well prepared for that. And so, you know, I, I do think that that's a problem. And then, you know, as a lot of different tools and capabilities make it easier for data scientists to deploy applications, if there's not a really good user design construct within whatever application they're deploying their their data science application in, then you know they need to be the ones to to take that extra step. And you know, as I said earlier, right, oftentimes the you know the data scientists see the world through data and algorithms and predictions, and they get enamored with the complexity of the model and the strength of its prediction and not so much with how easy it is for somebody to use it. And I think that's, that's probably a a kind of just a a reorientation with perhaps training that should happen within data science groups around design best practices and, and user experience design. I mean, they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to evolve into great user experience designers, but they are going to be able to recognize something that's really bad and perhaps ask for, for help and guidance to make it better. Do you think that'll stick then, that that role will continue to live there, this kind of, this person that needs to understand the business, like the business value that needs to be obtained, the user experience side of it, and the technology side is kind of the trifecta there. Do you think that'll stay in that data science world? I don't think so. So I I do think as you know there will be a separation between the data application design and the creation of the data science that informs that 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 feeds into that application. Mm-hmm. And I think you know as as we talked about as some of these companies get you know more companies get more mature and need to have more you know, pervasive deployment of data science insights, they're going to realize that they need to take a a different approach. And I've often said that in data and analytics, I see the industry maturing along the lines of of, of software development, right? And so that design focus was not a big part of software development early on. And I think it's, it's just going to, it's just going to have to happen within data science. Yeah. I look at it this way, you know, product, product owners can take many different titles. Like I've had all kinds of different clients, but ultimately the buck stops with everybody that's working on it, but it helps to have someone that's kind of at that intersection of 
what do we need to do? What's the overall picture of this? And they understand the tech, the business, and the user experience side. So whatever the title of that person is, that role to me is, is really critical so that technology doesn't run with everything or you don't, you know, you kind of have to have all three of those ingredients to, to deploy successfully. At least in my experience, it seems like that's pretty critical to have that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, we hear uh, like uh, a number of organizations that ask about you know, how do we show the value of our data science investments, right? How do we demonstrate our data science ROI? And I think if more data science groups really looked at how their data science products were being consumed and started quantifying those and then using some of the business metrics that are involved with that business process, right? Whether it's optimizing a spend or reducing average handle time at the call center, that would give them a great path to be able to validate their ROI to the organization. But I don't see a lot of data science groups doing that. Who asked that question? Is it the data scientists themselves or is it the, biz, you know, the business stakeholder who's hiring the data scientists or like what role asks that? Usually it's a, a data science leader who has a, you know, a large organization and you know, in large enterprise organizations, if you have a large organization with a lot of expensive resources, there's a continuing need to show the value that this organization brings to the overall company, especially when the output of that organization is not well understood or has not been a traditional part of that company, right? So, you know, a lot of senior executives, C-suite executives at large organizations didn't have data science when, when they were coming up through the ranks, right? So this is kind of a something new that they don't really understand. They know how much money they spend on it. And a lot of data science organizations will need to demonstrate, you know, here are the, here's the hard line benefit that this company has gotten for investing in data science capabilities. This kind of blends nicely into my, my next question, which is about obviously AI and machine learning are hot topics right now in technology. And how do these companies, so you hear signals, I, I hear this from people I talk to frequently, which is, oh, the board knows we're supposed to be doing some AI and they're asking me, like, how many sensors do we have installed and do we have digital transformation? And they, they ask these really high-end questions and they want to go spend some money on it because they're so afraid they're going to miss the boat on that. And from a design standpoint, we would say that, that smells, that reeks of possibly putting a, t- a cart before the horse, the tool comes out, just, we got to go buy this hammer because everyone else is buying this hammer and we have no idea what you hit with it, but <laughs> we got to have it. We got to go spend some money on it. Do, how do you ensure that you don't waste money? You want to invest in this. You don't want to miss the boat. Maybe there's potential for, for a project to do some, some to deploy machine learning or a, some, which is pretty much what a lot of these companies are doing in terms of AI right now. But how do you make sure that the, the desired investment from the business is actually going to have some kind of ROI? They've heard this tool is hot. It's what I call the hype cycle mandate, right? So, right. you know, whatever is the new thing, right? It was, it was a big data. It was, you know, AI and machine learning, right? It was data scientists, right? We have to have them. We have to tell the board we're doing this. I think that is where executives earn their money, 
is being able to manage the message to the senior leaders who don't, may not understand what's needed and how you use it so that you know they they can say yes we're using it but the leadership then the executive leadership are the ones who have to go out and figure out where are the business problems and what is actually needed right. uh, within our operating environment and our company to really deliver value from this capability. And, you know, I will say oftentimes, oftentimes I see executives making the right call in that way. Mm-hmm. I have seen cases where folks have gone out and bought a lot of software and hardware and stuff that they have no idea of how they're going to use. And, and that's a shame. Do you think the right step there is to take on a small project, find a small win, show a small value, and you can at least satisfy the, are we doing some? Yes, we're doing some <laughs> machine learning or whatever. Do you think that's the way it starts? Yeah, I am, I am a big, just in any data or analytic investment, a, a big fan of use case based development, right? So, right. you know, come up with a use case that requires this type of capability to execute it at the scale and precision that's needed, mm-hmm. and then do some pilots to prove out the value, show the value, and then, you know, that, that builds out the business case for, for the larger deployment that way. So, yeah, I totally agree with that, Brian. Start with the use case. Start small, understand, you know, have an eye towards scaling as you start small, but get a small win, show that you've done it. You know, the the CEO can, in all honesty, say, yeah, we're doing machine learning and, you know, we're, we're going about it in a way that is very, you know, fiscally sound, but will also put us in a position to be able to compete with the capability in a, a you know, quick amount of time. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I think there's a, I don't know who said it, but the, this concept of falling in love with the problem, and if you and your team or the people that work for you or whoever it may be can fall in love with the problem and then weaponize your machine learning against that, that's always a great thing. Is to get everyone kind of jazzed about the the problem so that you know that, especially if you can line it up with that technology. Not that the goal is to do that, but that that's when the big wins happen. At least in my experience. So. This has been awesome. Do you have any advice for overall what, what we talked about in terms of uh, you know, data product managers or da- you know, data science leaders, analytics leaders in terms of design experience, what they should be looking for going forward and just in general bringing more value to the customers? Is there a theme or something on your mind right now that, that needs to get communicated to them? Yeah, you know, my theme is yeah, data science is about big, complex data and, and a lot of technology and, and really advanced math. But there's still human beings who have to use it, right? Don't, don't forget the humans, right? Yeah. And, and so focus in on how great this data set is that, that you created or how advanced this analytic technique is that you're using. But remember, the humans are your last line to realizing value from all of this stuff you've done before. So make sure you keep them in mind as you go through all of those other steps as well. I think that's great advice. You can't, uh, and it sucks those pesty humans. (laughs) I know, I know. They just get in the way of all this greatness. (laughs) 
Well, this is awesome. I have one last question for you, and that's, have you ever surfed on a river? You know, I have <laughs> not. You're a surfer, I have, right? I, that came up in the webinar. Yeah. Like, I just saw this article yeah. in the Times about river surfing, and I'm like, I got to ask Kathy about yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of videos around that, right? I think it's like this bore tide where the, the tidal action creates like this perfect wave that you can surf like forever. And there's uh-huh. some really good videos of folks doing that down in Brazil, you know, with some of the rivers that are that are draining out into the Amazon and other rivers that are draining out. So yeah, it looks really awesome. But you know, there's there's this surf ranch in California that has this man-made wave. Kelly Slater, I think, you know, worked to create the engineering for this technology. And that's exactly what it looks like are those river bore waves. But I've seen, I've seen actually somebody in Munich surfing one of those before too, a video of that. So (laughs) it's on my bucket list, Brian. Sweet. (laughs) Well, where can, uh, you'll have to put the links. I want to put a a link to the uh, surf camp, but where can we put uh, some links to to you? Where can people find you uh, on the interwebs? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I am. Kathy Kuntz, and I am. You can also find me at the International Institute for Analytics. So it's uh, iianalytics.com, and uh, that's our website. But my LinkedIn name is Customer Journey Kuntz because that's always been my my passion is using data and analytics for customer journey, and so that's where you can find me on LinkedIn. Well, I will put those links at, in the show notes. And this was super awesome. Thanks for coming and talking to me today. We're going to enjoy listening. to So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brian. Have a good day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.